I told you when we started the book, the book had two introductions that sort of paralleled one another, and they, they told a little bit different perspective in each one. And the book also has two conclusions. Well, we are now done with looking at individual judges. And so chapters 17 and 18 are the first of the two conclusions. And it covers the story of this man named Micah. And then in chapter 18, we'll look at Micah and the tribe of, of Dan. And the, really the point that we're getting to is this is where Israel is now. We've seen these apostasies happen over and over again that this cycle continued where they would be prospering and then they would start worshiping other gods and God would judge them with one of their fellow, the surrounding nations and then God would rescue them and they would prosper and then it would start all over. And we've seen this through each of the judges and Samson was the last one we saw and we see there that Samson was not a good guy. He was only concerned about Samson and the nation around him never rallied behind him and said, yeah, let's, let's get the Philistines. No, I said, well, it's, it's kind of nice trading with the Philistines. It's okay that they're over us. Samson, don't upset the apple cart. And that's, that's where the nation has gotten to. And then these two stories here at the end give us this final conclusion on this time period. And really what we're looking at in this story with Micah in chapter 17 and 18 is, is man-made religion. Man-made religion. As we look at where Israel is at, they have taken everything that God has blessed them with, with the land, with all of these things, and they've fallen so far, they're just making stuff up as they go. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for a chance to open your word. Lord, I pray that you bless us through this story. Help us to learn. Help it to impact our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we begin, as we look at verses 1 through 5, we're going to see that there's this religious syncretism. Syncretism is, is taking two or more beliefs and trying to mold them into one thing. And that's where Israel's at. We've seen them worshiping all these other gods, and now they're, they're just kind of doing their own thing. Well, I like that, and I like this, and I want to take this, and we'll just, this will be how we worship. God has given them instructions, exacting instructions, saying this is how to worship me, and yet they're just going to do their own thing here. So we start out looking at the story of, of this man named Micah. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. So the writer here tells us really nothing about Micah's background except for that he lived in this hill country of Ephraim. As we see from the story, it's either with or near his mother. In Sunday school this morning, we talked about how Isaac's name is funny because it means laughter, and both Abraham and Sarah has laughed at God when he said, I will give you a son. Here we see irony in Micah's name because his name means he who is like Yahweh. And he turns out to be nothing like Yahweh. 
The fact that his mother gives him this name, he who is like Yahweh must speak good things of his mother. But as we find out in the story also, that's not true. I think we see that when, when people are picking and choosing and doing this and that. They, there may be outward things that, you know, wow, look at that. But inwardly, without God, without his one way to him, without his way of worship, it's all hollow. There's nothing true to it. His name really meant nothing because it wasn't who he was. His mother giving him that name meant nothing because Yahweh was nothing to her either. Look at verses 2 through 4. He said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from you, which about you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. His mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. Then he returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith who made them into a graven image and a molten image. Yeah, so as we, we get to see now who Mike is, he's a thief. He stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom. Now, if you remember, we looked at 1,100 pieces of silver last week. That was what was offered to Delilah. And they didn't... We don't know exactly how much this is, but they would say that they could have, you know, a person could have lived on about 10 pieces of silver a year. And so 1,100 pieces of silver was an enormous amount of money. And this is what Micah has stolen from his own mother. And apparently he only confessed his theft because he heard his mother curse the money. And so in her presence, she was angry, her money was gone, and she, you know, said something to the effect of, you know, whoever stole my money, you know, may their their hair fall out and their teeth rot, and I don't know what her curse was, it doesn't tell us, but she cursed this money, and him believing that this curse must might come true, he was afraid, and so he confesses. Well, Mom, I was, I was the one that took it. Interestingly, though, her reaction, I mean... If I had a million dollars in silver and I found out one of my kids took it, <laughs> I'd probably be a little ticked. <laughs> but her reaction is, instead of cursing him, is to, to bless him. She says, blessed be my son in the Lord, in Jehovah. Perhaps she believed that her blessing would undo her previous curse. I mean, she's, we see that what's going on here really is with this curse and... Her believing she can curse the money, him believing that the curse could come true, her thinking that by blessing her son, whatever curse she put on the money won't come true. This is all of them pulling in elements from the religions of the nations around them. This is not from what God has told them. This is all this syncretism, this, well, we learn this from these people and this from these people and how does that fit with what we do? And let's just make it all one thing. It's a dangerous thing. And then his mother, she claims that, well, now since I have this back, I'm going to give it all 
to the Lord. But she only gives 200 pieces. So of this vast, vast fortune that she promises to the Lord, she gives 200 pieces out of the 1,100. And so in essence, she's stealing from God just the way that her son has stolen from her. And so really, Micah hasn't fallen far from the tree. We see this dishonesty and running through their family, and it's giving us this insight into the culture. And it talks here about a graven image and a molten image. Uh, the graven image was probably uh, this idol, and the molten image would have been its base. And so as they've uncovered things, uh, they believe that most of their their idols, they would be standing on, they would almost always standing, sometimes sitting on a bull. And it was this sign of strength and, and vitality. And so that's what that's talking about here. So this idol that is probably standing on a bull. And so that's what is being crafted out of this silver. And the, the Hebrew word that, that's talking about the, the graven image, um, we can relate that to the golden calf that the Israelites made in Exodus 32. And we see that King Jeroboam make in 1 Kings 12. So Micah's mother evidently intended that this image it was either going to represent Yahweh or the animal in which the pagan people visualize their God standing. So what she's doing here, she's taking what she knows of Yahweh and what she sees of the religions around her. If she's saying that I'm dedicating this to Yehovah, that she is trying to make an image of him. That that's where this Algumation, this try to com- the combination of religions is gone. It's how far they've fallen. That to her God, instead of doing something to worship him in the way that he has asked, she is trying to do something that she wants, that she sees in the world, to, the religions around her. You know, as people, we like things that are, are physical and tangible, and, and so she wants this tangible image to to her God, just like the other religions have. And so that's, that is what we see going on here. And in verse 5, And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household idols, and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. You remember, Gideon made himself an ephod. That was the, the vest or the thing that the priests wore. It would have been precious metals and stones and was something that would set apart this priest. And so he makes himself one, and he makes himself other idols to put in his house. And then he takes his son, and he makes him a priest. And God has already told them that to be a priest, you had to be a Levite. To be a head priest, you had to be of the line of Aaron. His son is neither of those things. It's just a complete disregard for God's commands. And again, it's what they see in peoples around them, having his family member be a priest to bring you closer to God, that, well, look what I can do. I have these idols. I have a son who's a priest. I'm, I'm so close to God. But he's, he's seeking after God in, on Micah's terms, not on God's terms. Also, as he's disregarding God's commands, in Deuteronomy 12, God commanded the Israelites not to create multiple sanctuaries. 
You'll see at the end of the next chapter in 18 verse 31 that from where he lives to where the tabernacle was in Shiloh wasn't that far away. But it was all about what Micah wanted to do. Bringing in these other religions, trying to get close to God in his way. I mean, Israel has fallen over and over again into apostasy. And at the point we're at now, they're just, I mean, they're gone. He's not crying out to God, you know, the Philistines are still there oppressing them, you know, come save us. He's just saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I know all these stories, I know these things, let's worship God, but let's do it in our way. And as his mother's done, he's pulling in things from other religions that Israel has, as God told them what happened if they didn't get rid of the other people in the land, if they intermarried with them, if they did business dealings with them, then they would be influenced by their religions and they would, God tells them they would prostitute themselves with these other religions and that's what they're doing. By involving themselves in this syncretism in that they are pushing themselves farther and farther away from God instead of what they think they're doing and bringing themselves closer. And we see this in our world today. We see this in churches that will take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and it's man-made religion. We have God's truth. We have his word. He has revealed himself to us. We can know what's right and what's wrong. To Israel, he had revealed himself to them. He had written down, had Moses write down the law for them. He had revealed himself in mighty ways in the works that he did for them. And yet here they are, drifting farther and farther from him. And it's something we have to be wary of. It's how I am worshiping God. It's how I am seeking to serve him. It's how I am telling others about God? Does it match what he's told me about himself? Study his word, know it, because we can know him and what pleases him and how we can come to him. Second thing we see, or second point in verse six, where Israel is at, is that this, this culture of moral relativism. Verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so the writer here is explaining that, I mean, there's no king, so everyone just did what they thought was right. And in, in saying that, he's saying this is why Micah was able to do this without any repercussion. We don't know, but this thing was probably going on all over that everyone was just trying to come to God in their way. I got curious the other day. I used to see stickers all the time that would say coexist, and it would have all these different uh, symbols from all these different religions. So I was at Dolores Food Mart uh, a few weeks ago, and there was a, a sign on their bulletin board outside that meeting at the Dolores Community Center, there is a First Unitarian Universalist, Universalist, that's a mouthful. First Unitarian Universalist Church. And uh, it had a link to their, their website on the, the flyer. 
and uh, later on, I, I was just curious. I looked it up, and I mean, it's whatever you want to believe, whatever you don't want to believe. I'm, just, I'm reading through their website and all this stuff, and I'm looking at it going, well, what's the point? <laughs> uh, why? I mean, I come here, and I get to study something that is truth. It is the truth. They don't even believe in truth. Not only do I get to come here and study something that is truth, I get to be encouraged by other people who also uphold truth. And yet, with this moral relativism of that's what's good for you, then that's great. And this is what's good for me, then that's great for me. And we'll all just come together and, I don't know, I don't sing Kumbaya, I guess. I don't know. But that's where Israel was. And so when he says here they have no king, you can look at that and go, yeah, Saul doesn't come along for another... We don't know exactly when this took place. But, you know, Samson was about the same time as, as uh, Samuel. And so it's not far off from where we get the king Saul if this took place at the end here, you know, after Samson. But, yes... King Saul will come soon, and then King David, and then, yes, Israel will have a king and someone will hold accountability. But the point here is, God was supposed to be their king, and yet they had no king. They were far from God. They had rejected their king, and he just, you know, okay. Now let the consequences come. They had no king. And we look at that in our own lives, and we see it evidenced in things like a first Unitarian Universalist church, that if we put ourselves on the throne, then anything goes. It doesn't matter what kind of sin you're into, that's who you are. It doesn't matter what you want to worship or not worship, that's who you are. It's this relativism that everything points to you and what is right in your mind, and I look at all of that, and I go, and I'm, I'm glad it's not up to me. <laughs> I need God. I need you all. God has given us the church to support one another and to grow together, and I need that. But Israel doesn't have it, and they're falling apart. In verse 7 through 13, we see the materialism, this desire for earthly things instead of for the things of God. Now there was a young man, verse 7, now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite, and he was staying there. First off, this would jump out to a Jewish person reading this, the Levites were not given a territory. God had instructed them to live in certain cities throughout the promised land because they were the ones who would be priests and so they needed to be dispersed and God told them where they were supposed to be dispersed to. Bethlehem was not one of those places. So this is this Levite living somewhere he's not supposed to live. He doesn't care about what God wants. He had complete disregard for God's will. And he was showing that by his choice to live where he wanted to live. Verses 8 through 10. Then the man departed from the city... 
from Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to stay wherever I might find a place. Micah then said to him, dwell with me and be and be a father and priest to me, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. And so the Levite went in. So this young Levite decides he's going he's to leave where he's staying, happens to come across Micah. Micah's got the shrine and these idols, and he's obviously wealthy. And so he says to him, you know, I'll give you 10 pieces of silver a year, which is what they needed to live on. But then he was also going to take care of every other need. It's like you're getting paid your full salary, but your mortgage is paid, your clothing is paid, your food is paid, your cell phone's paid. You know, life would be pretty comfortable if you didn't have any bills and you still had your full income. And that's, that's what he's offering. And this young Levite is enticed by this. And Micah is enticed by the thought of, well, you know, I made my son priest, but even though that wasn't what God wanted, God wanted the Levites to be priests, so hey, I found a Levite. <laughs> so I'll make him priest. Even though it's this Levite that confesses to him he's living somewhere that he shouldn't have been, and now he's just out wandering, seeking what's best for him, and he finds it in Micah. This guy is going to pay him all this money to really pretend to be a priest. And if the ephod that he made is, they most likely think it was made to uh, resemble the, the high priest's ephod, and the, you know he's trying to take this place of high priest in this fake sanctuary that, and this is just, it's so far gone. But it's all about this young man wants this money. Micah wants, as we'll see, God to bless him in these physical ways. and It's all about what I have. So since Micah promised to support him financially, this Levite agreed to this arrangement. So he would become this priest, this spiritual advisor, and whatnot for Micah and his family. Verse 11, the Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became a priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing as I have a Levite as a priest. So Micah sets this young man up to do this service, to be this priest. And he, he comes to the conclusion in his mind, you know, he's already wealthy, obviously. He comes from this wealthy family. His mom had all this money. Uh, he's got enough money to pay this priest. But yet now, I mean, God's already blessed us. Now, now that I'm, I'm doing something even better, God will really bless me. We'll see in the next chapter that he was dead wrong in that assumption. But what we should see here is that the prosperity gospel was alive and well 3,000 years ago. That we come to this idea that if I'm doing this and this and this, then God is going to bless me in this way. That's not what, what God promises us. In fact, Jesus promised a life of hardship 
to follow him. But we, we so often think in terms of this life and the world that is around us and we don't have that eternal perspective that looks at, at building where moth and rust doesn't destroy. And how will God bless me now? We, as people, we see things that are going on and we think, well, God must be really in that because look at the number of people that are coming or the amount of money they raised. It's not the truth. God works in his ways. And sometimes, like in the beginning of Acts, it is large numbers of people. And at other times, it's these small movements that touch the lives of people and make disciples. And God is going to work. You got a fly bugging me again. God is going to work in the way he wants to work. And we need to be looking for that because we know his word and we know who he is and we're attuned to those things and we get on board when he is working, whether it's in a way that as people we can see or not. You know, in the way the, especially as Americans, the way we, most people look at the church and they're just so impressed by large church growth and uh, churches that have these thousands of people and all these things. And, you know, if a pastor can't grow a church by this much and this much time, then, then he failed. I mean, in that standard, Jesus would have been a failure. After three years of ministry, the, the, how small his following was, he was not a failure. He turned the whole world around with those 12 disciples and the, the couple hundred people that came to see him ascend. And that's, that's who our God is. We can't take the things that we see in the religions around us, the things that in our minds say, well, you know, I can justify this by saying this, or this is what makes me happy, so that has to be right. Or think that God is going to prosper us if we jump through certain hoops. That's not what it is to follow our Lord. That's man-made religion. And I tell you, we should, as we look at the way our country is going, and the way our country is just falling farther and farther from God's truth, and we see the repercussions of that, it's, it should be terrifying. It should make us so thankful that we don't rely on something that's made by man because man messes up everything he touches. We have God's truth. God who is in himself truth has revealed himself to us in his word and in the world around us. And that's what we believe. That's the strength that we have. Again, we'll next week look at what happens to Micah and the tribe of Dan, but it's not good. And then as we finish the book from there, it's even worse. I've been debating with myself how I'm going to preach chapter 19 for four months now. This is not fun stuff. These people have fallen because they're relying on themselves and their man-made religion. Romans 1, starting verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because of that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and of crawling creatures. I mean, in the, in the beginning of Romans here, Paul is, is pointing out the everyone is guilty of sin. Everyone's liable for their sin, both Gentiles and Jews. When we're looking at the children of Israel here in the book of Judges, I mean... God didn't just reveal himself through nature to them. He revealed himself visibly and powerfully and in his written down law. And yet this is where they're at. We have his word, his law. We need to ground ourselves in that. It's the foundation for everything we do. Again, next week we'll look at the, the consequences of what happens when we fall away from that.